Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pod Rocket. I'm Brendan. I'm on the engineering team at LogRocket, and joining me today is Brian Gracely from Solo.io and the Cloudcast. Uh, Brian, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, good to be on this side of the microphone. <laughs> awesome. Well, well, we'll put you through your paces today. Um, I guess maybe a, a good place to start is just to talk a little bit about what you're currently doing. Um, so solo.io tell us what it is what what you guys are are building and maybe we can talk a little bit about that yeah absolutely um so solo is a uh you know venture back company we're about 4 years old um we we're mostly in the sort of two spaces that are i guess relevant to developers uh we're in the API gateway space so um you know lots of folks will will use the API gateway for um you know sort of what what they'll call north and south facing traffic or outbound uh, facing APIs and then uh, the service mesh space is a little bit newer technology, but it's kind of there um, when you're building um, sort of modern microservices applications and all of a sudden everything has to communicate over the network as, a, as opposed to internal IPC calls. And it helps you with security and service discovery and east-west APIs and, and those sort of things. So we're, we're very much sort of in the, you know, connecting and, um, you know, connecting and, and making APIs and, and um you know, applications available to people around the world. And it seems like these products are are both in the sort of Kubernetes space, right? Yeah, very much. Um, you know, they, they build on a couple of technologies that people have probably or maybe heard of. Um, one is Istio. Istio is the, the service mesh technology. And then Envoy Proxy, which is, uh, you know, an, uh, a technology that sometimes is used by itself. Um, it originated out of Lyft. Um, and it's also become sort of the proxy technology that's most frequently used um, in the Kubernetes container space these days. Yeah, so we're at, at LogRocket, we're running all of our services on on Kubernetes and and thinking a lot about like, you know, there's this whole ecosystem of services that are doing something along the lines of like taking a problem that Kubernetes kind of makes hard to solve on its own and abstracting that and, and managing it. And I think sort of your product falls into that space as well. How do you see that sort of evolving over the longer term? Like, is there going to continue to be a lot of space for those products that are, you know, solving a problem that's kind of distinct to Kubernetes? Do you eventually see Kubernetes absorbing some of those problems and providing more native APIs that, that do the kind of things that like Solo does? Like, what is the future of that space? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, so prior to Solo, I, I was at Red Hat for about six years. So kind of going back time-wise to, to around the origination when Kubernetes first came out. And what was interesting um, in, in that evolution was, you know, Kubernetes is, you know, maybe for a lot of people, sort of the first, you know, cloud-native technology they might have played around with. There was, there was another, you know, four or five years before Kubernetes that was what was called platform as a service. So you'll sometimes hear the term PaaS kicked around. And, and the reason I, I bring those two things up is what people tried to do in the PaaS days was, you know, abstract things for, for developers, make it super simple to deploy stuff, hide a lot of complexity. And, and those are all super, you know, those are all really good goals to still have. And they're things that, that we want to do. The reason those PaaS things struggled was because they kind of built everything in uh, for you know for the system, so the system had everything from load balancers to API gateways to service discovery to you know the developer experience, all that sort of stuff. And and the struggle it had was everything was was sort of built in, 
And so it was great when it was great. And then when it wasn't, you know, what it wasn't, when it wasn't for what you wanted to do, you were like, ah, I can't, right. I can't build this application the way I want to, or I can't deploy it the way I want to. So what Kubernetes ended up doing was it kind of replaced the same goal as PaaS, right? It was like, how do I package applications in the same way? How do I deploy them at scale? Um, and, and what the Kubernetes community sort of did was they said, we're, we're going to sort of stop at some point um, and we're going to let other things fill in those gaps and, and, you know, operations teams, app dev teams, DevSecOps teams, whatever, can kind of pick and choose what they want that lives north of Kubernetes. And so that's where things like what Solo does, you know, fill a void. Um, and and they, they fill a void partially from, like you said, it sort of abstracts things, but it's also kind of a modular uh, attempt at, at how to do some things. So if you like parts of it, cool, you use that. If you like a bunch of it, you can do those things as well. But I think we, that's the lesson we sort of learned from around Kubernetes is, is make it more modular. Yeah. And, and this is kind of, I would imagine with the like all in pass solutions, you're thinking about like Heroku is the Heroku, one yeah, Heroku, that comes to mind. Pivotal Cloud Foundry. Um, yeah. There's a bunch of them that were out there. Yeah. Um, another question is, is kind of what type of teams is solo for? Are these sort of you know something that a small startup would use? Is this something that a larger enterprise team would need? Is this something that all teams need? Yeah, I, I think what we've found in the market is there's there's a mix of companies that that'll talk to us or you know are interested in the technology. Um, you know, some of it is is a mix of your sort of classic Silicon Valley startup types of companies. Um, you know, so born in the cloud, every their, their tech stack lives in AWS or Azure, um, and then and then there's a set of you know sort of Fortune 500, Fortune 2000 types of companies who, you know, are, are solving some sort of problem of uh, I have some legacy or heritage stuff and then I, I need to modernize and deploy new things so so we've been we've been fortunate that we, we've had a mix of them um, you know I, I think what we find is it's it's going to be companies that uh, you know kind of bias towards more modern technology so you know things like envoy and others are kind of a next generation of what maybe was there when it was nginx or ha proxy or something or another um, and then you know it's customers who who really uh, value scale. They really value security. Uh, they value that it can run on Kubernetes natively. You know, so so those types of things, um, you know, kind of flesh out what our customer base tends to look like. Yeah, um, and I guess by by way of of closing this bit, I'm curious. You know, what's next for you guys? Are there any big or, or exciting sort of roadmap items that you're looking at for 2022 that you want to share or talk about a little bit? Yeah, so you know we're we're constantly we're we're lucky in, in when you're small, um, you know you get a lot of feedback from customers. They they tell you exactly what they want, and they're not afraid to to say, "Look, I'd, I'd love to shape your roadmap." Um, so in our case, it's you know it falls into probably three or four big buckets. Um, one of them is uh, a lot of you know how do we how do we use these technologies when we have these cross teams? So. Um, you know, you'll have an organization that, you know, one team is focused on this set of services another one's focused on that set of services. And then sometimes there's a group that does like centralized types of services. Maybe it's billing or maybe it's account management or, you know, whatever it might be. So we've always been very good at, at like, you know, being great to help people, you know, do their outbound facing APIs or, you know, scaling the system up to, you know, millions of calls. So there's a lot of work going on around 
how do we create like multi-tenancy or uh, sort of workspaces type of capabilities so so teams can share best practices they can share um you know kind of deterministically what does this environment look like they can use GitOps and, and some things like that um, so that's a big space for us it, it allows us to work with larger customers with more complex environments um, one of the areas that's that would be probably pretty interesting to your audience is uh, we've always been very good at sort of HTTP types of, of APIs. Um, we're seeing a lot of demand for GraphQL. Um, so, you know, we're we're moving more and more of what we do to be, uh, you know, very compatible with GraphQL. So we see it as a, uh, it's another API that has to be protected, that has to be, uh, you know, scalable, resilient, and that sort of thing. So um, bringing GraphQL into the platform, both for, you know, uh, customer facing APIs, but also like internal types of APIs is a big area of focus for us. Um, and then just, uh, you know, kind of getting into a lot of scalability things. So you'll, you'll keep seeing us, you know, trying to scale, uh, how to do, you know, resiliency, how to scale to, um, you know, so you're not spending as much as many cycles on, um, you know, certain kinds of things that, that'll hold back how well it scales. Um, so th those areas are, are a lot of the focus areas. There's, there's some, you know, fine grain nitty gritty in there about, you know, what kind of authentication we do and other stuff, but those are the big areas we're focused on right now. Yeah. And, and I, I completely feel that sort of frustration of trying to get something to work with GraphQL that like doesn't already, doesn't already work with GraphQL where, yeah. you know, I think a lot of, a lot of telemetry and, and tooling has sort of adapted to it now, but especially yeah. a few years ago, you would have it just bundling everything under a single endpoint. And so all of your right. metrics would just get eaten and and it was very tough to sort of get a system that was thinking about like http rest apis where everything is nicely like parted out as resources in the url right to actually think graphql as as this like problem space to solve for yeah and just you know even even like simple things what you think might be simple things is like teams will start spinning up graphql servers and then all of a sudden somebody's responsible for maintaining them and it's like okay that's separate infrastructure, separate sort of problem space than uh, what they do for other APIs. And so how do you make policies consistent? How do you, uh, you know, do resource controls? And, and so we've been, the feedback we've gotten from a lot of people is like, I'd like, yes, the, the GraphQL kind of space is different in terms of how you aggregate data and how you build them, but like, we'd like to protect them the same way we do other APIs. And is there, is there an overset, uh, kind of a, an overlapping space there? Yeah. And I guess there's a common thread there with the the other thing you brought up around sort of, you know, providing more best practices and, and, you know, control within organizations that, especially as you big up, build out these big Kubernetes architectures, like software tends toward entropy. It becomes its, its own task to sort of maintain a well-architected system over time, right? You like, you get your migration done, everything's running on Kubernetes. What do the next five years look like? Yeah. And I, and I think a, a lot of companies are sort of learning, you know, if you go back a few years, you know, the, part of the reason the cloud got so popular um, wasn't because like it was necessarily cheaper, but it was, hey, I can I can get the things at the speed I want um, without having to ask people for it. Or I wasn't, you know, bumping into these things where, you know, your IT team would go, oh, I, I can't deliver that in whatever time you want, or oh, we don't know how to do that new technology. And so I think there's this new sort of concern that people have of like, we don't want to build these once again build these sort of monolithic stacks, even if they're with you know new cloud native technologies, because at some point they become hard to maintain. They be, you know you, you don't keep up the pace of it, and all of a sudden your your user base, your internal teams, and or your you know your your third party partners are like, okay, well I, I can't work with you anymore. I'm going to go somewhere else. So I, I think 
you know, there's a little bit of, of scar tissue built up of like, how did we get here? Let's not repeat those same mistakes again, or at least that same pattern again. Your, your title is VP of, of product strategy. Um, and I think that's something that might be interesting to, to talk a little bit about because it's not necessarily a role that exists in every organization. Um, and I'm curious, you know, for somebody who's never worked with a, a product strategist title before, what's your sort of pitch for the role and, and why it exists and, and what you do? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's, um, it is sort of one of these, uh, yeah, overlapping kind of titles, sometimes oxymoronic sort of titles. It's, um, I think in, 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 in reality, what, what you find sometimes, at least in smaller organizations, maybe not so much in, in big organizations is, um, sometimes strategy is a thing that, that falls between, uh, product management, um, product marketing, um, you know, how you engage with your customers, uh, you know, how you engage with the marketplace in terms of communications and, and a bunch of things like that. So, you know, it tends to be one of those things where you go, well, um, good enough at, at communication to a bunch of different kinds of people. So like I always joke around, like I'm pretty good at talking to people if they're wearing t-shirts and I'm pretty good at talking to them if they're wearing suits and, and somewhere in between there, they, they both tend to be in meetings, right? One cares about the business and, and budgets and stuff. And the others care about protocols and CLIs and automation. And, um, so there's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of, of, you know, being responsible for what's going on in the market today. Where does it look like it's going over the next couple of years? Cause if you're, if you're a product manager, for example, you're focused on sprints, you're focused on the next release, maybe the next couple of releases. Um, you know, you're, you're dealing with, you know, trade-offs all the time of, you know, do we do these features for this customer? Do we build some stuff new that nobody has necessarily asked us for, but we know we have to get there. Um, so I spend a lot of time kind of living between these different teams. Um, and it's, you're right. It's not necessarily a role that you'll always see, uh, maybe early, early on. Cause you're like, look, you, you run the product, you run sales, you run marketing, you, whatever. Um, and then sometimes you'll see them in, in larger organizations when things get kind of complicated, when your market has matured and there's, you know, there's a lot of different options that, you know, people can choose in the marketplace. And, and if you, you know, you, you sort of go, look, you know, we're, we're betting the next two years or three years on these two or three big ideas. You know, we, we want to have a pretty good sense of like, are they, are they going to pay off? Right. Like what are the odds they're going to pay off? And so it's, it's living a little bit between all those worlds from, from day to day, switching hats a few times from day to day. And, um, but yeah, you're right. It's a, it's, it is sort of one of those things where you're like, I'm not really sure exactly what that means. And, um, you know, like for me, I, I, I have to just be okay with the idea of like on any given day, um, my job might be a little bit different than it was yesterday or the day before or the week before. Yeah. So maybe as someone who has scar tissue from living through the like JavaScript framework wars of 2014 to 2016, uh, how do you figure out what the market's going to be doing in, in two years for your sort of, you know, space in, in technology? Like when that's your job, what does your process look like for, for sort of knowing the answer to that question? Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, we don't get any crystal balls. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a combination of a lot of things. Typically it's, um, you know, you, you spend time sort of outside the mainstream. So you're, you're going to events. Uh, I'll just give you some simple examples. So like if you go to events, for example, let's say you went to AWS reInvent just as an example, um, you're probably going to go spend time 
uh, on the show floor in the little tiny booths that are around the edge, because those are companies that, you know, right now nobody buys their product. Most people haven't heard of what their technology is. And you're kind of going like, why did, uh, you know, why is there a hundred million dollars invested and sprinkled around these little companies? Right. So you're, you're doing stuff like that. Um, you're out, you know, you're out talking to people, kind of asking questions about, um, you know, well, why is, why is anybody buying your product? Like what problem is your, is your, is your thing solving? It seems like it solved the last, you know, it's the exact replica of, you know, the way something else exists. What's, what's new. So you're, you're asking a lot of questions. Um, you know, in my case, I get a chance to talk to, uh, venture capitalists. I get a chance to talk to startup founders. I get a chance to talk to, um, you know, sometimes like you'll talk to a large organization, let's say you're talking to a bank and they have an organization within them that's called like center of excellence or office of the CTO. And you go, well, what are, what are you guys working on? Like, where are you, where are you kind of, um, you know, poking around and seeing what's going on? Um, you know, you explore what, what's happening in university research. Um, so you, you, it's a weird thing because you, you're out there kind of looking at this new stuff and you're, you're trying to find some way to bring it back to reality. Cause you're like, I know that we're not sure where that's going in a couple of years. Um, or, you know, maybe you're just, maybe it's as simple as like you're watching meetings and you're reading meeting notes or you're attending meetings for, you know, the JavaScript conferences, right? Like the steering committees and you're going like, okay, um, this feels like it's got momentum, but you know, is there enough, you know, is there enough money behind it? Does it feel like there's enough developers um, who are downloading it off GitHub or where are the stars? And so you're, you're kind of pulling all this, you know, disparate information together. You're trying to find if it, if it looks like a pattern that you've seen before, because a lot of times in tech, the patterns will repeat themselves. Um, you know, you're trying to talk to people that, that live with this stuff. And it's like, does this solve a problem? Does this really solve a problem for you? Is this just sort of, is it buzz? And you're not really even sure why it's doing that. And Somewhere in there, you're trying to figure out like, okay, is there enough, enough, uh, you know, sort of concreteness, or at least, um, you know, it's going on the right path that you're like, okay, that, that feels like a pretty good, um, next couple of steps that we should make. And then, you know, and then hopefully, hopefully you've got some mechanisms. If for example, you put it into your product. So like, let's say for us, it's, Hey, we want to put GraphQL into our product. Um, you know, do we have mechanisms to, to get feedback from customers? Do we have mechanisms to, you know, to try out, you know, some of the stuff that maybe is alpha in that, uh, you know, and get feedback. And, you know, so then you're, you're looking for, you know, once it becomes sort of like, maybe it's in the product or it's in the product, then you're looking for your sort of classic, you know, fast, fast iteration cycles, AB testing kind of stuff. Yeah. So it, it sounds like as you're sort of, you know, answering that I'm, I'm thinking there's like a lot on the business side and a lot on the technical side. Yeah. Uh, what is, what is your background that sort of led you to this role and, and how do you balance that sort of technical and, and business, you know, experience? Yeah. So, um, so going back a ways, I guess, so out of, out of school, I was a, I was a finance and economics major. So I, I sort of, um, I understood some of the business ways of things, at least before you have a job. Um, some of my early jobs, um, were, were in sales and marketing, um, before I kind of got into the technology, um, for some reason I was then kind of drawn to technology. So, you know, I wanted to learn how to be hands-on. I wanted to learn what works. So I did everything from, you know, tech support to, you know, what would be called systems engineering and, uh, design. Um, I, I was lucky that I worked for a couple of companies who, um, you know, were in a lot of different markets. So, 
you know, at, at different periods of time, they would go, oh, you want to change jobs? Like, that's fine as long as you stay. And so I would bounce around from, you know, hands-on technical. I did product management. I did product marketing. Um, I got to be involved with um, some of the, you know, we would do acquisitions of companies. So I got to work with the venture capital groups. And and for whatever reason, um, I was able to at least be knowledgeable enough to kind of switch, like you said, between technical and business. Um, you sort of realize you don't have to be as deep in both of them all the time, but as long as you can kind of context switch and you can learn how to learn. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I don't know. I, I think, I think because I didn't come up in sort of classically trained engineering, I always sort of look at things first from the perspective of like, where's the money come from? Where's the money going? Um, what do people do? You know, like how do people actually use it to solve problems? And then I sort of work back into the technology and, and sometimes that mindset tends to help for this kind of job. Yeah. Do you feel like that's a, a pretty common story for, for people in product strategy roles? Like when you talk to other people doing the, a similar job, do more people come from the tech side, the business side? Like what is your sort of impression of, of product strategists? I think it's a little easier. If you, if you come from the tech side, I think it's a little bit easier. Um, I think mm -hmm. what I find a lot of times is um, you, you, you have these really strong technologists at some point they've, um, you know, they've, they've been hands-on with the technology. They've built something. Um, oftentimes maybe they, they were, a, they were, a, you know, sort of startup founder, or at some point they, they said, look, um, I understand this stuff really well. I'm, I'm out in front being asked to communicate about it. So that's, that's often one of those things that happens is like when you're working on new technologies, nobody understands what it is. And so you have to find somebody who can, who can explain it to people, right? That's, that's oftentimes one of the first kind of things that, that gets you out of purely doing technology is can you explain it to people that aren't super, super deep techies? Um, because then at some point it's like, okay, you know, we're going to associate money with it or go to market or whatever. Um, and then at some point, once you're, once you're sort of doing that, then, you know, I, I find people either gravitate towards the business side of things, right? They realize, um, they like communicating about it. They like sort of dealing with the, the business side of it, whether it's how things are funded or starting companies, um, or, you know, sometimes they'll, they'll go, look, just all this talking stuff isn't right for my personality. Like it's not, you know, I'm, I'm too introverted or it just doesn't satisfy me. And they'll go back to engineering and they're super happy with it. In fact, they oftentimes double down because they're like, I don't, <laughs> I don't need any more of that. But yeah, that's, that's more the typical path I'll see is, um, you know, people who started engineering, weren't afraid to talk about it or were sort of forced to talk about it. And then at some point they realized like, okay, if I'm, if I'm that close to the people using it, like I should then figure out if there's a market for this stuff. Yeah. I, I guess the obvious question to, to you then is sort of, you know, what do you like about it? Like what keeps you coming back for more, you know, every day when you wake up and, and I was going to say go to work, but you know, all of us are remote now. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, so I, I grew up playing sports, which is a little bit sometimes odd in the tech industry. Like you get a lot of, you know, oh, it, it's sports ball or whatever. So I grew up playing sports. I sort of had this, I enjoyed it for the competitiveness of it. Um, and, you know, part of what drew me to the tech industry wasn't so much the technology. I mean, the technology to me is always interesting because it's always changing, but like the competitive nature of it is is really interesting. You know, sometimes you know, the competitiveness of the companies building the technology, but, but even more so like how do, you know, nowadays, how do companies use technology to, to be competitive, right? Like how does, 
you know, how does Domino's pizza, uh, you know, beat their competitors, even though people might say, well, their pizza is not the best, right. Or, but, you know, but their technology is really simple to use. And but they've got the tracker with all the steps. They've got the tracker. They've got the steps. They, you know, where it is or, you know, or, you know, how is, um, you know, how are the automotive companies kind of switching from being, you know, all about horsepower and styling of the outer body to now it's basically a laptop on wheels and how do you compete with Tesla or, you know, so all those things are really interesting to me. Um, and I, I don't know the, I think just the fact that there's somehow a need to, to translate between what do I do with this technology and how does this technology work, um, is always sort of an interesting problem to solve. So you are, in addition to, to doing product strategy, you are a fellow podcaster. Um, you are one of the one of the hosts of of the Cloudcast. The Cloudcast is, you know, maybe not one of the OG engineering podcasts, but you guys have been around for for quite a while. We're definitely now. yeah, we're definitely old. Um, yeah, we've been we've been doing it for like for like twelve years, I think maybe now, maybe maybe a little longer. Um, yeah, we've. I don't know that we would completely fit your audience. We we probably focus more on infrastructure and backend technologies, but yeah, we've been doing it uh, you know at least at least as long as people have been talking about cloud computing. So it's been it's been a cool way to learn. Yeah, and and I guess I can see a connection between sort of your job day to day and and needing to sort of keep an eye on the industry and the technologies mm-hmm. and and be seeing like what's new, what's interesting, what's driving buzz in the the cloud world, but I'm curious, you know, how do you come up with 12 years of, of podcasts? Like, how do you keep that going week over week? Yeah, it's, um, so we, we got started with it. So we're, I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina. So, um, it got started because we didn't live in the Valley and we didn't live in Seattle and we were, we were just curious. We were basically like, you know, we, we hear about a lot of interesting stuff on Twitter or wherever you get your news from. And we were like, I feel like I'm, you know, an outsider to the world. And so for a while it was, it was purely kind of, you know, curiosity meets survival. Like we knew if we wanted to stay in tech, we had to, you know, get more into what was going on. Um, and uh, you know, we needed to find a way to do that because every time we'd go to, every time we'd go to San Francisco, or we'd go to Seattle. Um, I mean, you're literally, you're, you have this luxury of every single night, there's five meetups somewhere. And, you know, you could go learn about JavaScript or you could go learn about, you know, a new programming language or some backend scaling thing. And you were like, you know, how do I, how do I replicate that? And so, um, yeah, I mean, some of it's just, you know, if, if, if you don't restrict yourself to one specific thing, um, what we found is it's like the, the, the enjoyment, the enjoyment is two things. One, it's getting to meet really smart people, right? So the, like our, our thing with the podcast is just, we're going to go find the smartest people we can find for any given topic. And, and we're going to give them a platform to hopefully teach us and maybe not teach us so much, but teach the audience. So that's, that's always cool. You get to meet really smart people. And, and for us, um, the, I think just the process of, you know, spending 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour doing the background research to be like, what, what's interesting about this space? Like, why does anybody care? Why are these companies getting funded? Why, why are there a million developers using this tool? it's just a curiosity. And, and I guess we've been lucky that, um, we've sort of haven't gotten uncurious. Um, but that's, that's kind of our formula is, I mean, there's, there, trust me, there are a lot of times when I'm like, I don't, I have no idea what this person does and I'm going to try and ask some good questions and try and ask some follow-ups. But, um, but that's part of the fun is it's, you know, it's always just been a learning experience for us. 
And do you feel like that sort of outsider perspective is is part of what's made the podcast successful? Like, despite what Hacker News would would have you believe, the majority of developers in the world do not live in SF and you know Seattle. Um, yeah, I think that- I think so. I think we, um, yeah, we don't we don't get wrapped up in some of the BS of you know some of the hype and some of the BS of things, and um, you know we we work we're inside enough to where we, we sort of, you know, we know, we, we know how to read press announcements the right way. And we know how to read, you know, when there's a lot of hype about something and then you kind of dig into it and you're like, it doesn't seem to be any companies using this stuff. And um, so, yeah, I think it's, I think it's helped us. And I think to a certain extent, like um, even the people in Silicon Valley, uh, in, you know, they reach out to us, which was really weird at first that anybody from Silicon Valley would talk to these, you know, you know, two, two kind of rednecks out in North Carolina, but, um, but yeah, I, I think it helps us a little bit. It keeps us grounded. It keeps us not getting, you know, enamored with, you know, the latest, whatever. Um, but so yeah, it, maybe it helps us a little bit. Is there, is there a dream guest who you haven't had on the podcast that, that you'd like to? Um, I, I mean, we've, we've never, we've never aspired to be like, I want to have, you know, Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or, you know, Elon Musk, cause we're like, they're never coming. Um, I don't know. I, I, we've been lucky when we ask for people for the most part, we can get them on the show. Um, I, I mean, it, here's the, here's the trick of it. I think, um, everybody has an ego and, and if you just simply say, look, um, we think you're really smart. We'd love to talk to you and we're going to put it on the internet. And so lots of people are going to hear about it. Like just that little bit of sort of ego stroking, um, has, has played out pretty well for us. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's some more mainstream people that, you know, would help us grow the show, but like, it doesn't, uh, you know, and there's plenty of people that cover the, the super big names. We, we like to deal with the people that build it and, and live with it every day. All right. Well, Kate, Kate and I are taking notes here, uh, at, at pod rocket as we, yeah. as we try and scale our show. Um, Brian, what do you want to point our audience at, uh, where should we find you on the internet? What should they take a look at? Yeah. Um, so if you're interested in any of the solo stuff, um, solo.io uh, points you to, you know, how you can try out the technology. You can go to hands-on workshops, like all the all the ways you could learn about it. Um, you know, in terms of our podcast, uh, it's thecloudcast.net. Um, and if you ever want to talk about technology, um, you know, I'm easy to find on Twitter. It's at B Gracely. Always happy to to chat with people about technology or career, you know, careers in tech, any of those sort of things. All right. Well, we'll make sure we include links to all of those things. Uh, thank you for coming on, on Pod Rocket. We'll see you around. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Pod Rocket. You can find us at PodRocketPod on Twitter, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks.